All right, well, let's talk about Unity then. So before we start this episode, which which I think is actually really good, I want to ask you a very serious question. Where the fuck did this woman get a wig from? <laughs> like, it's a really good wig, and I don't know where she got it from. So <laughs> I want to know. That is the secret of Unity that well, I would like to answer. Obviously, the wig was assimilated. The Borg uh, have probably the greatest wig technology. I could see that. Yeah. I mean, Borg would probably go on dates like everybody else and they want to look good. So, yeah. All right. I'll go with that. Do you so, think so the Borg it... have any, like, infiltration skills that they bother with? Why would they? I, yeah. But on the other hand, it is good to have an extra tool in your arsenal if you can manage to get it get a mission done by just having one guy sneak in in a in a in a wig and you know like on alias you know just a wig and a dress and an accent and then they can shut down the whole base you know save some resources i don't think that fundamentally speaking the borg are like that (laughs) so what did you think of unity um it's interesting because I think as an episode, it was a very good episode as one which is – I'd say both of these episodes were colored by the fact that I have a vague idea of what's happening next. In this case, that we are eventually going to get an ex-Borg character. And so mm-hmm. it is important that we set up the idea of there are people who are former Borgs that can – you know, this can people can be disconnected from the Borg and then be fine and return to normal. Um, which, which, of course, is something that we already knew from Picard's experiences with as, as Locutus, but but perhaps not to, uh, you know, he was not a Borg for very long. Whereas yeah. these, these characters seem to have been Borg for at least a few years. And in addition, uh, deborging Picard took a lot of Federation medical technology to the degree that, remember, a big part of First Contact was, you know, it's going to be too difficult. We can't save these people. We, you know, we, we, if we need to kill one of them, you know, they're, they're gone. They died. Um, and, uh, here it seems a lot easier, quote unquote, if you know disconnecting someone from the cube. If disconnecting the cube in this way is easy, then these people get deborged pretty uh, calmly. I'd say. Right. Well, yeah, I I agree with that. I mean, I I don't necessarily have a problem with the concept. However, no. uh, par- partially it's just because I think Voyager has beaten me down, and I don't <laughs> necessarily. I don't mean we have to take what we get. So I I think that this is an it's enough for me that Voyager was able to come up with a a unique take on the Borg. Yeah. Right. Like part of the problem with the Borg, as we talked about with First Contact and we also talked about with Borg episodes of, of TNG, is that there's there's only so much you can do with them because they are so overpowered that you can only tell a best of both worlds type story once yeah. and and then you have to come up with interesting and and unique ways to deal with the borg as tng did in in i borg for example and did not in descent <laughs> Uh, but yeah, but- I mean the the question of can you go back from being a borg has is in the dna of even tng at this point. Yeah. Yeah, and I and I think that this is an episode that asks that question and obviously comes up with a an answer that is a resounding yes but does so in a way that i think is is interesting and also honors the 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 i think the uh the overpoweredness of the borg because 
The Borg yeah. are definitely something that are best used in small doses. And in this episode, what we get essentially is the idea that if a Borg cube is completely uh, deactivated, uh, somehow some of the drones are going to wake up and remember who they are. And I think part of the difficulty with getting Picard back in Best of Both Worlds had more to do with removing all of the Borg implants yeah. than anything else. And and we see in this episode that these people in this colony have, have not been able to, to do that. They, you know, when, when Chakotay walks in and, you know, sees them doing whatever they're doing with the Borg technology, uh, it's some sort of Borg thing that they still have to do to, to maintain their their existence. And, you know, if we like the Romulan character, for instance, like still has the eyepiece that's yeah. attached to him, you know, he can't get rid of it. So I don't necessarily have a problem with it. I, I, I think it works fine. Especially because their plan is to be good Borg in a way. So in a way, number one, I assume that the technology to and and skill to remove the borg stuff is beyond them so they just kind of have to live with it and you know they've made the best of that but at the same time they their ultimate plan is to re it's to use it for a beneficial reason uh and of course whether or not you can have something as powerful as borg be benevolent is i guess the open question of the episode and i think the I think a very good question to ask, uh, because yes, the Borg that we have seen so far are horrible. They they take every species without any regard for them. At the same time, the idea of a society which works so harmoniously is a beautiful idea, and you know the Federation certainly wants to create a society in which. You know, every member is working for the common good and everybody mm -hmm. is working together and there is no conflict like that. Um, but I think they feel that this mean these means are too – it's too dangerous of a technology and too much power. The way that Earth created its utopian government that we have in the world of Star Trek, which frankly – given the events of, say, Homefront Paradise Lost from DS9, suggests that it isn't quite a utopia. I mean, there is still conflict on Earth. There are still disagreements. Um, mm -hmm. But that was only one through long years of strife and struggle, and ultimately the realization that diplomatic means are better, that a common good can be worked towards, and frankly, that I think... I, I think the post-scarcity nature of Federation society is a very important cornerstone of it. I think without yeah. it, it's a much more fraught paradise. Yeah. Well, I, I, there's a lot of different ways you could take that. And I, I think that what that makes me think of partially is, you know, this, this idea that is, uh, you know, sort of ascendant in, in some, you know, circles of thought uh, online or, or whatever that – you know, one of the reasons why Americans are so sort of blasé and cavalier about the the real and perhaps lasting damage that Trump and his administration are doing to the democratic norms of this country, uh, you know, and the fact that we have, you know, Nazis play acting at, at being, you know, sort of like Civil War militias or something or, or starting some new civil war is that Americans have no living memory of war. Americans have no living memory of a, of a government that is not functioning. And so we don't 
know how bad it is to have a civil war. We don't know how bad it is to live in a country or live in a place where the government is not functioning, where things are breaking down to a large degree. And so we don't take these things seriously, which I think is is partially human nature. And I, I say that because your statement about the federation coming from years of strife and struggle is a real one. I think that that is necessary for something like the federation to, to come about. And in a certain sense, this episode is asking hard questions about, can you shortcut that process? Mm. You know, can you, uh, cause Janeway even says that in this episode where when Chakotay and Janeway are, well, J- you know, Chakotay sort of monologuing at Janeway and Janeway is pacing, uh, about, you know, these people would not be volunteering. These people would not be consenting to having the link reestablished. Is that okay? And that is the part that is 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 problematic. That is the shortcutting of the real work that it takes to build something like the Federation. Yeah. It would uh, be one thing if this group of people says, we would like to be linked like Borg. There's a hundred of us or however many. And you know, if we meet somebody else and we manage to convince them that voluntarily, oh yes, you know, no, I think that would be great. You know, that's one thing. But yes, they're forcing this on everybody. And I and I do think that you know, and I, the part of, part of the reason why Unity works so well is that it's very good at ambiguous situations, mm. and it's very good at showing what people will do in in desperate circumstances. I mean, let's not forget that. They ask Janeway if if they will if if Voyager will help them, you know, reestablish the link, and and they accept the answer at yeah. first, at first, and then once push comes to shove, and they are in a bad situation where essentially uh, their enemies are storming the castle and they're about to be yeah. destroyed, then they perhaps make a questionable decision. But they are uh, their backs are against the wall at that point. We do see the bad guys pounding at the door so yes they are in desperate straits this is the one thing they are it's not necessarily wrong that they're doing this to save their lives right it's not necessarily wrong it's not necessarily right either and i think that part of the part of what i appreciate about this episode is that it does not tell us what it thinks the right or correct answer is it lets us come to our own conclusions about that and I think that's something that Voyager perhaps doesn't do often enough. So, you know, it's a very it's a very ambiguous episode in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think the episode feels that the episode ends almost hoping that, well, let's hope that these people stay on this planet and all they do is create this light agrarian, you know, compound where everybody lives in harmony. They don't try to go off planet. They don't try to recruit other people. They just kind of mind their own. If that, you know, the episode hopes that because then you know, all right, there won't be any lingering consequences from that. But at the same time, I mean, Wrath of Khan dealt with consequences. I don't know if Voyager will, but what if they don't stay on planet? Right, I mean, yeah. the, the, the episode certainly ends with that, well, what if they decide they want to go off planet and, you know, bring other people into their fold and then they have become the Borg? I mean, that might even be... You know, we don't know how the Borg really started. We got some suggestions in First Contact, but um, 
This episode almost suggests that what if it did happen from a group of people who just voluntarily decided this is going to be the best way to work in harmony. We'll mm-hmm. all be linked and networked. We can all be working on the same page for a common good. Okay, now let's get our neighbors into this so that way they can join you know this wonderful thing they create and so on and it snowballs. Yeah, sure. But I, I think that what what is hard for me, though, is – Star Trek has always been a franchise that is very optimistic about technology, right? And that and that humanity and, and other species, sort of unfettered and, and unchained through technology by establishing limitless sources of energy and replicator technology and all of these things, you know, they're going to be able to uh, maintain their their existence through. You know, get rid of poverty, get rid of all these things, right? Hunger, et cetera. And so, so Star Trek has never been really shy about a very, very optimistic look and view of technology as a, a good. At the same time, of course, episodes have asked hard questions about the proper uses of technology that I think what you can really say is that Star Trek perhaps believes that the technology is neutral and that you can do good or bad with it. Whereas um, in this episode, and I think with the Borg in general, there's kind of a blind spot where this technology is is viewed as vis-a-vis a bad thing by its very nature because it takes away your individuality or whatever which is a, which is a strange thing for Star Trek to argue and I also think that it's a little bit irrational because Star Trek has species that are telepaths so in what way are the in in what way is the Borg link different from Beta Z Yeah let's well let's say that so Deanna Troy has relatively weak telepathic ability she's able to talk with her mother sometimes with will Riker, but she can't just read the mind you know of anybody that she sees let's say that dr crusher invents a little thing one of those things you put behind your ear and that will boost her technology it will have it boost her telepathy it will have no side effects to troy's you know brain or anything like that you know, it will be used, and we can trust that Troy will use it responsibly and all of that. Um, what would be the difference between that and doing a Borg link? Right. Well, I mean, like, even more basic, though, I mean, we already know that the planet Beta Z exists, and that and that yeah. full Beta Zs are telepathic. So, in a sense, they are the Borg. You know, I, I mean, obviously, know, yes, we the- don't, we've never gone to Beta Z. We don't... Star Trek is not going to like get into an in-depth examination of of Betazoid culture and how that would sort of inform it. But but on a planet like on a very basic level, if you have an entire species and an entire civilization whose whose members are telepathic and are able to read each other's thoughts and project their thoughts, in in effect you have a Borg link. And so I don't know why star trek is arguing that the borg technology is inherently a bad thing i guess that what i and here is another thing where i have we have to write circles around the episode we actually have but a beta z society did develop alongside the telepathic ability we can assume that there was some kind of evolution of this telepathy and that the society changed in order to 
accommodate that. And again, the Beta Z society that we see mostly through La Oxana, Troy, but mm-hmm. the Beta Z society we see is very open, very free, very you know, people do speak their mind because you can't hide it and things like that. And this is a society which is used to living in this way. I think that – and meanwhile, the people who are – you know, you meet a Beta Z person, you're going to assume, all right, they may be a little more uh, candid about their feelings or, you know, or maybe they'll ask right. questions that other people would consider rude. But that's about as far as it go. They aren't uh, – you know, they aren't forcing other people to be telepaths against their will. If the Beta Zeds, you know, made people telepathic, you know, without them wanting to, if they forced them into this uh, thing. I mean, I'm thinking about the – a couple of weeks ago where the um, the people who, the people who committed the genocide with Balana having the dreams and all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with re- yeah, remember, yeah, yeah. Um, in, in the scene where the one guy takes control of Janeway, and you know he, re- he realizes that you know he did, she didn't understand that you know what what she was asking, and I mean there are a lot of social rules and taboos surrounding that. There are probably a lot of social rules and taboos in Beta Z society about you know you really don't read somebody's mind if they're not a Beta Z, you know if you don't know them well. The Borg don't seem to have those taboos, and so. Uh, and I think that, again, I, I, I think it seems almost, it's the short-circuiting, which I think is the major thing, and the fact that it would be the Federation, uh, guiding this or doing this in a way that may be inappropriate. It's one thing if these people figure out the technology on their own. It's Mm -hmm. another thing to give that to them. Yes, and I mean, I certainly think that that it's a smart choice on the episode's part to make them project their will in inappropriate ways to to make Chakotay act in in ways that he does not consent to in in order to reactivate the link and and cause all of the former war drones on this planet to to become linked again. Uh, I think that's a really, really smart choice for the episode to make because— it it like it like Janeway says at the end of the episode, and like they have that debate where Chakotay says, "Well, you know, they 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 did help me. They are building the society. They uh, did listen to us, et cetera, et cetera." And, and then Chakotay says, "Yes, but they also, uh, when push came to shove and their back was up against a wall, they they did decide to exert their will and essentially force yeah. me to uh, uh, commit crimes that I would not necessarily have have committed." And Janeway's like, "Yeah, that's true too." Hmm. And then the ship flies off. Uh, I admire that sort of ending, and I admire the the you know sort of ambiguous nature of it. There there are no easy answers here, and I think the this yeah. episode realizes that. And in a lot of ways, this is just an introductory Borg episode, right? They're going to do a lot with the Borg, and so this to me is saying here's the kind of themes we're dealing with with the Borg. We're going to be dealing with this collective identity thing, whether it's right to force somebody into this, whether a collective is a good thing or whether, you know, whether this kind of forcing of will, whether it is possible to create a society based on diplomacy and mutual agreement or, you know, what do you do about the fact that, you know, whoever at the end of the day, you just have to hope the person with the biggest gun doesn't doesn't just exert their will. 
Yes, yeah, certainly. But I but I think the other part of this episode, which I, I think is interesting, and, and I think this is a thread, because one of the things here is that I think a lot of the problems with the Borg are, are not Voyager's fault. And, and I think that this episode is doing a pretty good job of alighting a lot of them, actually. Uh, because everything we're talking about is stuff that's been established before. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that I think is is so strange about this episode as well, and, and the ways in which Janeway and Chakotay and everybody else are treating these former former Borg are, you know, it, it's almost a sort of like, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party kind of thing, where you can never get away from the fact that you used to be a Borg, that you have yeah. this this original sin or this guilt that you can never get rid of, and that it is, you know, entirely inappropriate to ever treat former Borg as anything other than Borg. And I don't think that that's right. I mean, I think that it's an interesting concept for the Federation to be faced yeah. with such a powerful existential threat that it essentially short circuits and throws away all of their hard won mutual respect, admiration, tolerance, you know, approaching alien races and everybody in good faith kind of idea. But I don't know if it necessarily realizes that's what it's doing. Well, yeah. And I mean, to us, we're going to see, we will, I think, see a lot of, you know, is the only good Nazi a dead Nazi themes in this, you know, if, right. Yeah. How do you, you know, and a lot of, a lot of things that I'm reading, you know, a tolerant society can only can be a tolerant society needs to be intolerant of intolerance or else it gets destroyed. And, you know, the Federation does need to make certain lines in the sand. And, you know, TNG made it clear that the Borg are an acceptable line in the sand, even when they've, you know, gotten deborged by lore. I mean, they they just get controlled by another asshole. Um, and I think Voyager, I hope Voyager is interested in muddying that water and actually addressing that theme. Well, how do we deal with that? Yeah. Well, we'll see where where they go with that. I mean, you know, this is certainly something that's going to happen sooner rather than later yeah. because you know that Seven of Nine exists and they have to get Seven of Nine at some point. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, I, I also I want to talk a little bit about the structure of the episode because I, I, I do think that, that you know, I, Voyager, perhaps a lot of episodes are not the most well-structured and we will certainly get into that when we talk about Darkling. But I like the fact that, for example, you know, Chakotay and the... And the Sad red shirt who dies. Ensign uh, Kaplan. Ensign Kaplan, yes. You know, pour one out for her. Uh, that they land, you know, they beam down to this planet. It's They're immediately attacked. You know, the the, the people that are the, uh, uh, you know, the non-Federation colony or whatever you want to call them, uh, they are established as a threat and they are established as very irrational very early. You know, I think it's very smart for the episode to stay away from Voyager for the first nine or ten minutes of the show to really sort of ground it in the reality of this. I also think it's interesting for the show to slowly unpack the fact that these are Borg. All of these things are really good choices for for the show. And it's an episode that moves very well. And it's an episode that, you know, instead of kind of collapsing in on its own weight, it really does build on everything and comes to a very logical conclusion, even if that conclusion is, uh, you know, perhaps not the one that we would want to see. 
Yeah. I mean, I thought it was actually very interesting that they have a red shirt. Voyager has avoided that just because of the economy of its cast, in a way. We only have, what is it, 140 people, so they can't yeah. pull off another red shirt every single week. So, I don't know. On the one hand, it feels highly significant. This is a big threat. On the other hand, it felt like they used a red shirt on this. Yeah, well, that's true. And I, I think that... that- Part like I, I, it didn't surprise. I again, knowing this is a Borg episode from the Netflix description, yeah. a red shirt gets killed by a Borg. We need to make it clear how major this is. Because I mean, the last right. person who was killed on Voyager wasn't it like suit by Suter or something like that? I, I mean, who? It yeah, was, maybe. You I, th- know, I think so. Yeah. Normally, they make it clear. Oh, we had injuries, but no deaths. You know, kind of a thing when the ship goes, you know, haywire. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I know. I, I, I'm with you. I agree with that. Um, and, and I guess maybe the the last thing to talk about before we move on to Darkling is is Riley Frazier. You know, we we haven't really yeah. talked about her as a character, and you know, I think that she is. I don't know. You, on the one hand, you could say she's a little too perfect. On the other hand, she does seem pretty instrumental in using Chakotay to do things yeah. against his will. So, like that that to me indicates that the show is aware of her perfection and is willing to. Uh, show that she is actually not uh, some sort of perfect person. Um, you know, she's an interesting character. I think that she is exactly the type of person that Chakotay would be attracted to. I guess mm-hmm. I'm glad that Chakotay got some finally. Uh, but Chakotay almost seems incidental to this episode in a weird way. And I think that it probably could have been, it probably could have been any of the male characters. And see, I can see Chakotay getting very invested in this theme because the theme of the people who feel that this is our land and, you know, this is our home and we don't want to just find another place. Yes, that's the theme of Voyager as a whole, but that's also the theme of what why the Maquis started. Again, yeah. the show has forgotten that he is a Maquis based on his father who made this land his own and wanted to keep and cherished that. And again, you think... You know, I could see Chakotay being personally invested because of this reason. It feels like a missed opportunity on the show's part, you know. Hey, I was a Maquis. I know exactly what it's like to fight for what you think is your home. That's that's all it takes. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, and of course, part of that is just due to the fact that, that, you know, this is a different version of the show. Yeah. Uh, they have moved beyond that, and, and the fact that the Maquis are there is something that is not uh, relevant anymore. Well, uh, again— because- the show's not interested in it. That's something. That's not something Jerry yeah. Taylor is interested in. Again, I can see why they don't harp on it. I don't think they care anymore about the distinctions, but it was still his past. Yes, I think so, and I think that that is probably the the weakest part of the episode. That that Chakotay as a character is is not the most well defined, and you know, I think this, for example, I think this is the first time that we've found out that he's a vegetarian, for instance. Mm. Uh, it is the case that he is sort of a black box that you can put anything into and that he slots into this episode only because he hadn't had an episode in a while more than any real, you know, inherent qualities of his character that make him useful to this episode or or integral to this episode. I mean, yes, they, they do say, Oh, well, you know, respect for life and, and you are very kind and you want to help everybody and all that kind of stuff. But that's true for Harry Kim too. Uh, Yeah. It's true for Tom Paris. Even it's true for any of them would be impressed by that. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right, well, we're going to move on to Darkling, but before we do that, I just want to take an opportunity to remind all of you, as we said at the top of the show, that Truckabout is listener-supported. I'm not going to harp on it, but go to patreon.com slash truckaboutshow and give now. Okay. So, for a few minutes there, I thought this was Kess's final episode. I was happy with this ending for Kess. It seemed like a very natural ending that was satisfying and made sense. Sure, it would be Kess running off with a man, but at the same time, Kess has expressed an interest in starting a family. You know, she is getting older, and maybe now she's going to revisit the idea of she can go through her pond far. You know, the next when when it's the appropriate time, and then she will be ready. The, this traveler that she meets has c- certain qualities in common with Neelix, his wanting to travel, his seeing the world, his being comfortable in all of these places. It's enough that it makes it seem like that's a quality that she is attracted to. And so it feels like, you know, Neelix was the warm-up for this relationship. Having her and this guy go off into the wild to adventure, that also opens them up so that way Kes can appear as a guest star from time to time if they want to bring her back. I thought that's where it was going, and I felt really good about it. And at the end, she's like, no, I'm not going to do that, which makes me then think, okay, well, they're going to fucking kill her off then. And I don't want that to happen. Um, she doesn't die. I'll just okay. say that. Uh, I, I, yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I think that... Like, what was I the point of this episode if that's... If, if, if it, was, it was a total tease. It's, you know, you're right, because I think that, yes, I, I, I think this is more... I hate to say it, but I think this is more of a doctor episode than a Kess episode. And I think that the Kess yeah. story is is the B story, right? That That's the story that is less important. And I don't know. The show has kind of forgotten about Kess. And the fact of the matter is she hasn't really played an integral role in the show for a while. Uh, Warlord was the last time that she really played any sort of role, and that was not Kess for most of it. And I don't know that the show knows what to do with her, frankly. I think it's another it's another case of Jerry Taylor is not interested in Cass, which is a shame because I really like Cass and I think yeah. she's a really interesting character. Uh, I mean, to a very to a very particular degree, why are Neelix and Cass broken up? Like, yes, they <laughs> did break up, but also that wasn't Cass. No, but I imagine that, uh, uh, and that's something that could have been clued better. I mean, certainly, give me a quick, s- DS9 would have had a scene with the two of them where they were saying, you know, haha, we broke up when you were, you know, possessed. But Gene Neelix, you know, you seem very at home here. Well, yes, this is where I want to be. Well, Gene Neelix, I don't know if I want to spend my whole life on Voyager, I only, you know, for you, this is, right. yes, you know, this may be, only, for, for Neelix, he's spending another five years on, and th- sorry, four or five years on this ship. He's home. He's going to wherever Voyager is going. If Voyager ends up back in the Alpha Quadrant, he's going to live in the Alpha Quadrant. She doesn't necessarily know that. She may want to go home. You know, th- th- that would be the perfect that, opportunity for that and to set up this. Well, gee, you know, maybe we should just they, be friends. They could have had that conversation in fair trade. Yes. Like that would have been the perfect opportunity for that conversation to happen. Especially because that episode is about Neelix feeling, you know, alone and lonely. And I don't. And, oh, even Kest doesn't want to 
be my girlfriend fair, anymore. Yeah, because Fair Trade is is the episode where Neelix recommits to being part of the Voyager family. Yeah. And it would have been a perfect opportunity for the show to introduce or insert a scene with Kess and Neelix doing exactly that. Like, you know, at the end of the episode... Neelix says, oh, you know, Cass, like, I know we didn't really break up, but I'm recommitted to Voyager. And and then Cass says, you know, I've been thinking about actually yeah. leaving the ship or whatever. Right. And that would have worked really well. Yeah. And again, it's just another missed opportunity of Voyager. It's not exactly the most careful of shows. Uh, and we'll just leave it at that, I guess. I, I think that for me, what what it comes down to is that Cass in this episode is being telegraphed as older. She's being telegraphed as someone who is maturing mm. and she is someone who, because even her clothing has changed. Yeah. Know, she's not wearing those little tiny skirts and stuff anymore. I mean, she's that, that was a very sort of a uh, 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 childish yeah. look for her. And she is, you know, she is wearing more mature clothes now. She's in her thirties now equivalent. Exactly. Yeah. And she does say I'm three, you know, so I'm yeah. not a kid anymore. Um, but part of it is that, you know, what you said earlier about Kess wanting to travel has always been true of her character. That's why she was initially attracted to Neelix. Yeah. And that's why she uh, would go with Neelix on Voyager and the pilot that this is a character that that, you know, unlike a lot of her Ocompin compatriots, she was not content with living in the underground city and dying after nine years she wanted to go out and experience the the galaxy and what is interesting to me is that this episode establishes that that kess would be interested in a more ad hoc exploration of the galaxy with a someone who is a dashing rogue because for a lot of what has happened to Cass, for all of the adventures she's had and all of the wonderful things she's seen and experienced in the two and a half years she's been on the ship, it is also the case that she got a job out of it. I mean, this episode makes it clear that she's expected to file reports. You yeah. know, she's got to she's got a boss. I mean, Tuvok basically says, What the fuck are you doing up? You've got a report due in five hours. And she's like, Get off my back, dude. Uh, I don't think that Cass wanted to get a job out of this. Yeah. And it makes sense to me that she would be attracted to go off with this guy because the two of them in a ship, she's not going to have to file any reports. She's not going to have to do a stint in sickbay every day. Uh, she's going to be able to do this in a much more loose fashion. That is yeah. maybe, you know, that's where her interests are going. Well, yeah, this is the equivalent of her. She's gotten a PhD or, you know, she's gotten her medical doctorate probably at this point or very close. This has been college for her in a way. And she probably very much did need this particularly structured environment. She is it, it, it is good to have a bunch of people watching her back while she takes her first step into the larger world. Sure. And she has thrived in this environment. She's also at the point where she's feeling the edges of it and realizing that, you know, now I need to be in a point where I I get to make the decisions and I get to choose where I want to go. And if I want to stay in this place for a while, you know, and learn something, that's cool. You know, I don't have to answer to anybody, you know, just right. the two of us will get to decide that and figure it out. Uh, and now that she's, and she's certainly picked up a hell of a skill set for herself, so she's going she, she's at a point where she's learned pretty much what she's wanted to learn. Now she's going to go out and use that those skills. Yeah, yeah. And and I also think that that you know a part of that too of course is 
Sahir is he's attractive enough. Like, and I don't just yeah. mean physically. I mean, you know, obviously he's a comely looking lad and whatever, but uh he seems like a good guy. Like he's not yeah. perfect and he's not sort of viewed as such or, or presented as such. But yeah, I mean, why not? Like Kess and Sahir, you know, Kess doesn't live very long. Sahir wants her to travel with him and he seems like, you know, they'll have a good time together. So why not? I mean, no, you know, that I think that's also part of the reason why the opening where he is introduced, uh, he comes up and he's like, hey, you shouldn't lie to these people because they're our friends and blah, blah, blah. You know, like he is being established as someone who is forthright and honest and all of these things. And so he seems like a fine guy. Yeah. I don't know why Kess initial. I don't know why Kess eventually makes the decision not to go with him because everything that we have been talking about that her character has been going in makes me think that it would have been much more in line with her character and much more true to the character if she had decided to leave the show at this point and go off with Sahir. But, you know, it is what it is, I guess. And especially because when they first talk about it, they're talking about, like, a vacation. She said, oh, he wants to go and see this place and then we're going to we'll rendezvous with Voyager. So there is right. the perfect opportunity for her to come back and say, you know, the getting there was wonderful we had a great time on day three you know i want to go and he was very impatient you know we we just and we had a terrible flight back so you know lovely guy i wish him the best but that's it like that that would have been fine that would have been a way that allows her to explore this but also make the decision that no at this point i still i have a better time on voyager i don't want to leave this before it's right and that would be great yeah, no, I'm with you. I, I think that's true. And and also, I mean, this is kind of a, a side issue or not related to that, but uh, I, I like the fact that this, this species, I mean, one of the things that I think is interesting about the third season of Star Trek Voyager is that, you know, it is doing a much more alien species of the week style approach yeah. to, to its storytelling in a sort of TNG way, uh, which also, of course, lends itself to alien races that are perhaps friendlier or more helpful to Voyager. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that I like about this episode that, you know, the, this species is, it's not perfect, obviously. And, and the guy who runs that outpost is not a nice guy no. uh, and he's a bit of a liar, but these are nice people and they're helping them. And, and there's a, there's a real sense of mutual respect and, and, you know, cooperation here that I think was, was perhaps missing from the show in, in the first two seasons. Yeah. I like that the species seems to love other people, find other people fascinating, extremely hospitable, but they can't fucking stand each other. Like they, they view yeah. you know, companionship together as just necessary evils. I mean, I would be very surprised if most of them didn't choose traveling companions from other species or. Yeah. Yeah. It's point. true. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I guess we have to talk about the doctor. No, we don't. Okay. Well, if you have any thoughts, and <laughs> no, it, it's it's uh, it's just it's not good. Like none of this is good. And why do they need their communicators when they're on the ship? Why couldn't Bolana just say, say security team to med bay? Immediately. Why didn't she just turn him off? Yes! Computer, I, 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 end you... holographic medical program. That takes about two seconds to say. 
And I mean, and even, all right, so that would end the plot. Computer and holograph program. You'll notice I took the deliberty of deactivating my controls. Okay, fine. See, yeah, yeah, that that is a problem here because this is something that, you know, I have not mentioned in a while, but part of my issue with a lot of television is that, you know, you get these things where plots are driven by people acting in stupid ways or not talking to each other. And this is an example of a plot being driven forward by people acting in stupid ways. Like... Yeah, you, Bellana should have tried to turn him off. Uh, you could do that where he says, well, yes, I deactivated that, so you can't do it. And the plot would still continue. Or, for example, when Kess finds uh, the Dr. Jekyll in the holodeck. Yeah. Instead of confronting an obviously deranged doctor who is dangerous and doing like really fucking creepy uh, serial killer style torture things to the holograms. Why doesn't she leave the holodeck? Yeah. He doesn't know she's there. Yeah. No, the, the, again, they have a security team whose job it is to deal with these. The entire point of Voyager is that we have a group of people who working together are going to solve the problem. So fucking call on them. I agree with that. And, I don't really like (laughs) this is also I mean, this is really two episodes. Right. And we obviously like the Kess episode a lot more than the doctor episode. Mm. Uh, But fundamentally speaking, you know, the doctor is a character that I think is a problem because he is like data in that Mm. data. This is some of the like some of the worst instincts of TNG where data acts in bad ways and they sort of hand wave it away by saying, well, you know, he was reprogrammed by nanobots and everything's fine now because Jordy LaForge took him down to engineering and uh, fixed him. Right. And, and but this would happen like once a season where data would like go homicidal or something. And you're like, this is not an yeah. ideal situation. Like if one of your normal I, wouldn't, I shouldn't say normal, but like one of your like uh, uh, organic crew members you know, like, yeah, went homicidal. Souter had to be confined to quarters, you know? Yeah. Like, and there's this idea that like computer programs are, are different from, from organic beings, which yeah. Okay. They are sure. And that like the doctor was not necessarily responsible for his own actions in this episode because he had this sort of multiple personality that was created by subroutines. He inserted into his program, but, uh, that's still not really a defense. I mean, yeah. if I hit someone with my car and kill them, I should still go to prison. I mean, I did not intend to murder anybody, but I, I did kill someone. So it's just like, it's it's strange to me that like, they're just like, well, he's fixed now and it's fine and nothing's going to happen to him. Is yeah, there's fine? no discipline on him. You know, nothing. Ha- he doesn't have toilet duty. He doesn't have, you know, like like nobody says. Yeah, because like- it's like, don't fucking mess around with your program like this. I mean, it's even worse than Data because at least Data never actually did this to himself. Yeah. Like when Data did this, we got something like in theory where he was kind of a creep to his girlfriend, but he didn't go around pushing people off ravines. Yeah. <laughs> I fucking hate the doctor in this episode. Yeah, no, this this is not I love the doctor. This was a terrible doctor episode. And I guess this is it's a stupid villain and it reminds me too much of Tuvix in its own way except done utterly unsympathetically and it's it's the worst like it's the I, I I think I said to you like really 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 early on 
in Trek about. Like I'm talking like five years ago. Oh god. That one of the things about Star Trek is that you really need to love all of it, the bad parts, the good parts, you yeah. know, like and and I would not be criticizing this story so much if I didn't love Star Trek. And and you know, Star Trek means a lot to me. It has been something in, that's been in my life for decades. Uh, it is something that I have been sharing with you for five years in the audience. This is something that I have a lot of passion about. And to me, what this comes down to is that I, I guess it's, it's the thing where it's like, like be better than this Star Trek. Like, <laughs> like the, you know, you're, you've done this before and that like, I understand you're making a lot of television and I understand all of these things. Right. But like you could figure out a different way to tell a story where the doctor wants to integrate different personalities into his programming without it becoming a doc, like a Mr. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde story. I mean, that's not interesting. It's been done before and it doesn't say anything about the doctor. It doesn't provide us with any new information about the doctor. It doesn't provide us with any character insights. It's just supposed to be creepy and, I didn't watch Dexter for a reason. I didn't feel good watching this episode. Like, this was just a... It was an unpleasant episode to watch. And not in a way that was, oh, because it made me think of dark stuff. Because, no, it was just like... It, it's just sort of like it, it's a kind of episode that that is kind of like a fun house and you're just supposed to go, oh, well, this is scary. The doctor is being weird. And then at the end of the episode, you're not supposed to take anything aside from it other than that. But like fundamentally speaking, the doctor should have been disciplined at the very least. Mm. And the fact of the matter is he was not. And so what is he to learn from this thing? Like, oh, well, you know, I can push people off ravines and become Dr. Jekyll and nothing matters. It doesn't Listen, matter. Listen, I feel like the doctor would insist on disciplining himself even if, if if nothing were coming. I think the doctor would feel a lot of guilt over this, particularly over what he did to Kess, and he would not let himself off very easily. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, like, you know, like wrapping around to to the cast plot again, I I could certainly see the end of this episode being, well, I wasn't going to leave, but uh, the guy who's my mentor has proven himself to be a little bit unstable, and I don't feel safe around him anymore, so I think I am going to leave. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that would have been a pretty interesting way for the cast character to leave the show, I think. Yeah. I don't know. I, I just... I don't know what they're doing with the doctor sometimes. and They don't think, know what they're doing with the doctor. Yeah, I mean, I, I like the doctor. I still think he's probably one of the best characters on the show. Probably a lot of that has to do with, or maybe not even probably. I think well, a lot of it has to do with, with Robert Picardo. I was uh, just about to ask, do we like the doctor or do we like Robert Picardo? We probably like Robert Picardo. But they're treating him as a box that they can pull out a plot from and and not have it be any sort of there there's no lasting repercussions to any of this and at a certain point you have to ask yourself does this make sense and i don't think it does yeah they were just as they take data's homicidal rages as just one of his quirks like the fact that he reads poetry which i still maintain is fucking brilliant um they're treating the fact that, oh, the doctor got homicidal because he put some literary characters in him. What a scamp. Right. I mean, he did some pretty bad things to Bolana too. And yeah. he kidnapped Cass. 
Uh, and also, frankly, I mean, leaving aside the doctor for a minute, I, I, I honestly, I think my least favorite part of Star Trek is uh, the community theater historical recreations that they do. Yeah. I, I just, I fundamentally do not have any particular interest in watching Brian and Braga write dialogue for Lord Byron. I, you know, like. It what looks like this? a bad educational show. If I wanted to see this, I would watch Doctor Who. Yeah, like, you, I mean, those characters obviously come from kids' <laughs> programs, right? Like, I'm sure there's a, you know, spend yeah. time talking to Aristotle, and he'll tell, and that's how you learn about Aristotle's theories or whatever. Right. Like, yeah. I think that's a good way for kids to learn, but it's yeah. not really it's not really entertaining, entertaining television for, a, for adults. Right. I'm 36 years old. I don't necessarily want to see Lord Byron and Gandhi have a you know perfunctory conversation that was written by Brian and Braga. I just don't. And for that matter, this show isn't for kids, really. Not that it's you know a heavy adult show, but you know this episode deals with some you know dark. I don't know the the. The people to whom Gandhi would appeal to are not the people who this episode would appeal to. But although this episode doesn't probably appeal to anybody. Uh, uh, yes. I bet I, people I think... love it. <laughs> God, I Is this not. one of those horrible episodes that everyone was, oh, I loved that episode. That was the best. Well, this episode did make me realize that I've never seen the Attenborough uh, biopic of Gandhi, and I should probably uh, uh, huh. recti- rectify that at some point. Um, so when I have a free, you know, three hours, I'll, I'll sit down and watch that. All right. Well, I think that's it for, for this episode of the podcast. If, if you have any thoughts on either of these episodes, please leave a comment on the post for this episode at trackaboutshow.com. And also, once again, we will remind you that we are taking questions for our special listener special where you ask us questions. So please do send us an email to trackaboutshow at gmail.com. Do not leave them in the comments. Just don't. Don't do it. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we are there. Trekabout Show is our username in all those places. You can find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash trekaboutshow. It also supports our other podcast tuning in. We are taking a short X-Files hiatus. We are talking this week about episodes one and two of the second season of In the Flesh, the BBC Three gay zombie series from a few years ago. So go listen to that. And finally, please leave us an iTunes review for Trek About. It is the best way for new fans to find the show. All right, next week. Not going to lie to you, Richard. Uh, It's going to be a little rough, I think. Uh, We're going to be talking about Rise and Favorite Son.